Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your promise that you have given us to a faithful Savior, the Son of David, Emmanuel, and that he will hold us fast because we're pretty bad at that. And so, Lord, I pray that the rest of this service, the entirety of this service, as your word is proclaimed, would be how you hold us fast. I pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7. We'll be reading Isaiah 7 uh, and Isaiah 8 today as we are walking through the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah 7, and we're going to begin with reading the first two verses. Isaiah 7, verse 1 and 2. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Thus far God's word. So that's the setting. We've got a historical setting here. It is a war. Ahaz is the king in Judah. He is the son of Jotham. He is the grandson of Uzziah. In fact, he is the great, times a few, son of the great King David, David and, David and Goliath David, who reigned a few hundred years earlier over all of Israel, and he reigned from Jerusalem. And so this guy is his great, times a few, grandson. Judah is actually, he's saying now he is the king of Judah. Now, why would that be true? Well, Judah is actually true Israel because many years earlier, there was a rebellion. There was a rebellion named by, uh, uh, led by a man named Jeroboam. And this rebellion split the nation of Israel into two, split them into two. The rebels were the majority actually of the 12 tribes. 10 of them, they left the sons of David. They left Jerusalem and they were called Israel, 10 tribes. And they were actually false Israel in a a sense. They left the son of David and Jerusalem and they called themselves Israel. And the remaining two tribes remained there under the reign of the house of David. And though they were true Israel, in fact, they weren't called that. They were simply called Judah, which is the name of the tribe that David came from. So Judah and Benjamin also remained with Judah. Good old Benjamin. So Israel, the the, the false Israel really, their king was named Pekah. And he made an agreement with Syria's king, Rezin, to attack and overwhelm Judah. And then to remove Ahaz, the descendant of David, to remove him from the throne. That's their plan. And they've made great progress attacking Judah. And they could not yet, though, mount an attack against its capital city, Jerusalem. If this makes you think of current events, you you, you shouldn't be surprised. (laughs) So they've attacked this country, but they can't yet mount an attack against its capital city, Jerusalem. 
So the way that verse 2, though, is phrased is actually a very lovely summary of the problem. What's the problem? Instead of saying, Ahaz was told this, who are we told is, is told this? Who heard about this? Do you see this? The house of David was told this. Oh, you're supposed to get a whole bunch of history rush into you and David's mighty throne. So the house of David is told this. You've got these two enemies. You've got the false Israel, the false people of God, and you've got the nation, the empire of the nations are coming against you. And the house, the mighty house of David is told this. And how does this guy respond? He trembles. His heart trembles as the leaves do in the forest when the wind blows through them. I want you also to notice what was told them. Not that Syria is in league with Israel, which would have been true, right? That was a nation called Israel. But what was told them? Israel is in league with? Just called Ephraim. Why? This is Isaiah or God's way of poking them in the eye and saying, you're not really who you think you are. I'm not even going to call you Israel. You are rebellious against the house of David. I'm just going to call you Ephraim, which is one of the tribes, one of the 10 tribes that rebelled against them. You are a fraudulent group with a fraudulent king. So what's happening is that false Israel is aligned with the empire of the world to fight against the house of David. To fight against the anointed king of God, the little M Messiah of God and his people, the throne of God, the city of God, and the people of God are under attack. And they are terrified. Where are they going to turn for help? This is the question. They've got to turn somewhere. How are they going to get rid of that shaking feeling, the the feeling of a, a shaking heart? I wonder if you've ever had that feeling, the feeling of a a shaking heart. I have. It is terrible. And a person is going to do almost anything to get rid of that feeling. To get rid of the feeling of a shaking heart, a terrified heart, which feels as if the whole world is shaking beneath you. So what is the son of David going to do with the people That God has given to him. Will he. And therefore they. Trust in God. That brings us to our first point. The Lord will bring judgment. And you will remain only. If you trust in him. The Lord will bring judgment. And you will remain only if you trust in him. So let's pick it up. God pursues Ahaz. The son of David. And he pursues David. As they are trembling. So let's read verses 3 to 9 together. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and share Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim, And the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you saying, let us go up against Jerusalem and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people 
And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Thus far, God's word. So Isaiah, whose name means the Lord saves, takes his, is to take his son, Sheer Jashub, whose name means a remnant will return. And they're going to meet King Ahaz to deliver his, him a message. But is Ahaz in his palace? He's not. He's likely inspecting and preparing the water supply for Jerusalem because they know that Jerusalem is soon going to be under siege. So they need to make sure that they've got a water supply. If you've got a siege coming. And what does the Lord tell Ahaz, the son of David? What does he tell him? Actually, he tells him a lot of do nots, doesn't he? Most of this instruction is to don't do anything dumb. Stop. Don't do things. A lot of do nots. Ahaz's main job as the son of David here is to make sure he did not do the wrong thing as the son of David on behalf of the people. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. Do not act out of your fear of these men. Don't let the fear of men control you. These men want to remove the house of David from reigning over the people of God. And they want to replace him with a fraud. You're too afraid of them, Ahaz. You're seeing them as more than what they are, which is just mere men. They're not even trees. They're not even logs. They're not even logs on fire. They are what's left after logs have been on fire. Just a little bit of smoldering and a little smoke and a little bit of those red spots. He says the plans of these men that are coming to attack Judah and Jerusalem, the plans of these men will not come to pass. Now, come to pass is a favorite line of the prophets of God. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that this is a favorite line of those. It's actually often used of God's plans. It shall come to pass and then fill in the blank. That was God declaring what would happen. Not simply because God knows the future. Oh, God knows the future. But when he says it shall come to pass, he's not just talking out of the fact that he knows the future Things come to pass because God brings them about. He knows the future because he's the author of it. And so God is saying these two kings are merely men. I wonder if you notice God fails to mention the name of King Pekah, king of Israel, which would have driven that guy nuts. He's just simply called Remaliah's son. These men are merely children of men. Who's the head of Ephraim? Notice he doesn't say Israel again. Who's the head of Syria? Just men. Where'd they get the authority, their authority and power and scariness and stability from? Just men. Uh, their dads? They got it from their dads. That's just Remy's boy. So within 65 years, Ephraim, which called themselves Israel, will be shattered from being a people. This is, the, this is what God is saying. Your great fear. Think about this. The thing that you think is going to be able to change and dictate your whole future. The thing that you think your whole future depends on will not even exist in 65 years. It seems so timeless, this threat against them, but it's not. The nation, the breakaway tribes, which exist as a separate nation against the house of David, they're not even going to exist anymore. The head of God's people, their representative, 
the son of David. So he's faced by a large group of people who are claiming to have the favor of God. And they've teamed up with a large group of people who simply worship a different God. And as the head of God's people, the son of David, the little M Messiah, Ahaz is left with a choice and he does it on behalf of God's people because he's their representative. He's the son of David. He represents them. He's left with a choice. Will you trust God's promise to preserve a people for himself and to preserve the line of David and the throne of David? Or you'll be so afraid that you're going to run to another savior. King Ahaz, the son of David, we're, we're soon going to see he has been looking at another savior. The king of Assyria. Don't get confused. Syria is the, is the threat right now with, with Israel. And he's looking to Assyria to come and help him. That's what his hope is. And the king of Assyria has also made big claims about being in control of the world and also to be able to rule over kings. Well, there's kings, but I am king of kings. Oh boy. But unlike God, who also says he's king of kings, the king of Assyria's army can be seen. And so Ahaz is really inclined to trust the king of kings that he can see, who has an army that he can see. So will Ahaz trust God to save, which is Isaiah's name, by the way, or will he trust in the horses and chariots and gold of Assyria? Isaiah warns him. If you do not have faith in God's promise of salvation, not just if you have faith in things, your faith kind of person. No, if you don't have faith in the promise of salvation, you will not stand. Your only hope is to trust in God's promises of salvation. That's it. Ahaz was tempted to trust the king of Assyria to bring judgment against Israel and Syria. He wanted them to be destroyed, and he was trusting that Assyria would be the one to do it. Isaiah says you should instead trust that the Lord God will bring judgment against your enemies. And if you don't trust God's promise to judge and save you, you're also going to be destroyed along with your enemies that you want to be saved from. Isaiah's son, then, is both a warning and a promise. Remember, what is Isaiah's son name? Sher Jeshub? Sher Jeshub means a remnant will return. So there's a promise there, but there's also a warning, meaning God will only spare a remnant, a remnant that trusts in him. Amos, who's writing about the same time, he, he's talking about the remnant. And when he says he's describing the remnant, he describes it as a little piece of a lamb's ear rescued from a lion's mouth. That's the kind of remnant that's going to be spared. And Isaiah here is saying, the thing that's going to set them apart is that they will be the ones who trust in God. So dear church, God will judge his enemies. He will judge those who claim to be Christians, but are not. And he will also judge those who openly reject the God of the Bible. They threaten abuse and God will judge them. He will show that they are merely just burnt out fires, though they talk about themselves as major trees. But simply being a member of his church is not enough to spare you from that judgment. 
The only thing that will spare you is not being part of the right country, not even being part of the right church, but by trusting in his promise to save. That is the remnant. Number two, second point, God is with us to save and judge. God is with us to save and judge. Because it's one thing to make a promise, but when God makes promises to the son of David and to his people, he wants to prove them. He wants to seal them. He wants to secure them as his promises, as a promise that he has actually made. So let's pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that's at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts, in the rocks, and in, on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the and the hair of the feet and will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns with bow and arrows. A man will come there for all the land will be briars and thorns And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread, thus far God's word. So Isaiah comes again to the king, to the son of David. And on behalf of God, he invites the son of David to ask for a sign, a miracle to prove that his promise is actually God's promise And it came from God. Ahaz is not interested in that promise. And therefore, uh, he's not interested in the command that God would give uh, to, to pick a sign. He's not interested in this. So he refuses to choose a miraculous sign for God to do and to prove his promise. And he pretends it's because he respects God so much that he doesn't want to test or try God. But God sees through it and he tells him that his refusal to trust in him is actually the thing that's wearying God and testing God. So Ahaz, the representative of God's people, he represents the house of David as well. And he fails to trust in God. The son of David refuses to trust in God. Not even interested in a sign. 
And so God himself says, I'm going to give you a sign to prove my promises. The virgin shall conceive and bear a child. And before the child is old enough to know right and wrong, the land of the two enemy kings, which Ahaz fears so terribly, is going to be deserted. God's going to whistle for Egypt, which he calls the fly. Known for flies because of the Nile spilling its banks. And he's going to whistle for the bee. Assyria was known for bees. So Ahaz's enemies will be destroyed. But so too will he and his land be destroyed. They're going to be like a razor. Shaving not only the head, but the whole body, even the private parts. The bees of God's judgment will not just destroy Ahaz's enemies. That judgment will come for Ahaz as well. And for the people that he represents. But if you would have trusted the Lord. And not trusted Assyria. The Lord would have spared you from Assyria. Ahaz. So the land's going to be run over. Farmlands destroyed. No crops. It's going to be overgrown with wild plants. So you're not going to eat crops. You'll have to rely on curds and, and hunting. And on honey. And it is because the son of David refused to trust God's promises. Now the sign that God gives is a little confusing, isn't it? Who is that child? We aren't immediately told who that child is. That's going to be born as a sign. The, the word here, which is translated virgin could mean a virgin, a, a woman who's never been with a man. It could also mean a young man of a, a young woman, sorry, of marriageable age. It most often means uh, um, uh, a man, or sorry, a woman who had never been with a man. That most often means that. If Isaiah simply meant a young woman who was married, he probably would have picked a different word, but he picked a word that is, that, that usually means virgin. And it seems odd, unusually, but purposefully unclear, but a son would be born and he would be called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. The birth and life of that child, when he's born, would be proof that God has come to be with his people to save, but also that he had come to be with his people to judge. Also that he has come to be with his people to judge. God would destroy Ahaz's enemies, Ephraim and Syria. So he would save them from their enemies. But God would also destroy Ahaz and his people for not trusting him to be their savior. And when that child Emmanuel is born, you will know for certain that God has come to judge and save. Third point, God's judgment comes quickly. God's judgment comes quickly. And we have the first installment of the proof of God's promise here. The proof that he's spoken these words and that they can be trusted. And that you're a fool for unbelief and that you are wise to trust him. So let's read that in Isaiah 8, 1 to 4. Then the Lord said to me, talking to Isaiah, right? Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerobekiah, to attest for me. And I went into the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, 
the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, Samaria is the capital city of Israel, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Thus far, God's word. So, you get the picture here? Isaiah is supposed to come again and write another prophecy. This time, he's supposed to write in large characters, in common language, on a pretty big piece of something. In common language, and he's supposed to write this for everybody to be able to see it. Almost like graffiti, public graffiti. Belonging to Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. Which means, spoil speeds, pray hastens. This was to publicly say before it happened, while everyone is afraid of Israel and Syria, that Assyria would be very quickly quick to pounce on those nations, but also to pounce on Judah, Jerusalem, and the house of David. And it's coming quickly. Now it's easy after an event to say that you knew it was going to happen. I, I knew I knew it. I, I'm sure I, I said it. You probably heard me say before that this was going to happen. You sound like a prophet after the fact. I, I, I knew that that was going to happen. Well, Derek, wonderful. So Isaiah, though, beforehand, he's supposed to get two well-known, respected public figures as witnesses that God through Isaiah prophesied this thing would happen before it happens. So he gets these two guys. Not all, and so he's prophesying that God's judgment is not only going to come on Israel and Syria, but also come on Judah, and that it's coming quick. God's judgment tool this time was Assyria. Judah itself and the house of David were also going to be its prey. See, the Savior they were trusting in would actually consume them. So Isaiah then goes to home, and then his wife conceives. Nine months later, a child is born, and God told him to call his name Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. If anybody's looking for a boy's name, it's a great one. It means the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. That's not a lovely name. That's doom, 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 doom. Did you notice that Isaiah's wife is called the prophetess? Because this kid is himself a prophecy. And so in giving birth to him, she's prophesying. She's bearing a prophecy. So that's why she's called a prophetess. And this is the first installment of the Isaiah Emmanuel prophecy. You see the similarities there? Talking about the kid's age and what's going to happen before the kid turns a certain age. So before he's old enough to say mom and dad, the capital cities of Israel and Syria, Samaria and Damascus, are going to be plundered and taken away to Assyria. And that judgment is going to come quickly before that kid can say mom and dad and before he can eat solid food. The judgment's coming quickly. The people you fear so much instead of the Lord are going to be so soon shown that they are not worthy of your fear. You're going to look like a fool for being afraid of them. And it's going to happen before Isaiah's kid can talk. This kid does seem to emphasize that Emmanuel prophecy that we just heard, right? but doesn't actually fulfill it. So the Israelites, after it's fulfilled, we were like, that seemed like that, but it seems like there's more there. We're still going to be waiting for this Emmanuel child who's going to be born to an actual virgin. And so this serves as a first installment. 
saying, whatever happened with this kid, Marishal Hashbaz, is just a sign, just a foreshadow. It's proof of a greater judgment coming in a greater child being born to prove that God is with us to save, but also to judge. So what happens with Assyria is merely a preview of what's going to happen with Emmanuel. Fourth point, Emmanuel's people will see that God is a gentler Lord and a more faithful Savior. Emmanuel's people will see that God is a gentler Lord and a more faithful Savior. Why is it that Ahaz was such a fool to trust Assyria? Not only is it wrong to put your hope and trust in men and world powers, it's also foolish. It's not only good and right to trust in God, it's sweet. Let's read 8, 5 to 10. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice in over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you people, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word but it will not stand for God is with us. Thus far God's word. Ahaz was the son of David. This is a special title. That means he's the little M Messiah. And part of his responsibility was that he was forbidden from taking a submissive alliance with another empire. Because that would ultimately be treating that king as the king of kings. And his gods as the gods of Israel. Judah was not a normal nation. It's not like Canada. Canada can make allegiances with empires or nations or whatever. But Judah, the throne of David, was not ordinary. It was the nation of God. They were not to make submissive alliances. David's line was to produce kings. And the only, the only person who could be considered the king of those kings was the Lord. But though God had proven himself time and time again to his people, they kept looking to emperors and kings and other nations. And they thought the security and safety and supplies that, that were coming from them would be a better bet. Where is our help coming from? The son of David was always to reply from the Lord. And yet Ahaz instead said, Assyria. The analogy Isaiah gives is is the water source. Did you notice that? Jerusalem's source of life was the Lord. He kept her alive. He was her water. Jerusalem's water source was actually the waters of Shiloh. And it was a a streams that flowed very gently, 
good water and it flowed gently. And so he says, seeking Assyria to care for them was kind of like seeking a raging river or the raging Euphrates river. You're asking for it to come and wash away your enemies and give you life, but it's going to flood its banks and it's going to destroy you too. Isn't it true though, that the things that we hope and trust in end up crushing us? Shiloh's gentle waters were like the Lord's tender care for his people. He was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He did not need to be restrained by other people. He restrained his own anger. And his discipline for his people was not to destroy, but to train and shape and sanctify. God needs nothing. And he stands to gain nothing from his people. So he wouldn't reign over them selfishly. There's no such thing for God to be selfish in that he doesn't need anything. He is their Lord for their benefit. And so it means God is restrained by his own goodness, his own character. But not so the rulers of the nations. Not so the emperors which Israel preferred to submit to and to seek after. And to seek shelter under. So they were fools to think that Assyria would come to destroy their enemies, but also not destroy them. And because Ahaz, the son of David, the representative of God's people, because he refused to trust in God and instead trusted in Assyria, he would really be the last son of David who would actually reign without being a puppet king of another emperor. That is, until Emmanuel would come. And Emmanuel did come. 700 years later, born to a virgin who had never known a man, the son of David, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ. God became a man. He added human nature to himself to become one of us. He was with us to save and to judge. He's born to Mary, who remained a virgin, as we read this morning, until after her baby was born. And when he was born, and when he walked on the land of Israel, Israel could be sure that God was now with them, to save and judge them. And then what had happened with Assyria was merely a preview of the salvation and the judgment that, I, that this um, Emmanuel would bring. He would come to judge their enemies, it's true, to destroy their enemies, but he would also come to judge everyone in Israel who did not trust in the salvation promised by God. I wonder if you noticed that the raging water of that Euphrates River where did it go to? Did it cover their heads? No, it goes right up to their neck. It stops. Somehow before that line of David, before the people of Israel are completely destroyed, the water stops just before it wipes them out completely. Who stops him? It's the Lord God who stops that king. He keeps a remnant. He keeps a remnant from his people being destroyed by a punishment that they deserved. Emmanuel hung on the cross. And the raging waters of God's judgment and wrath did not stop at his neck, but completely overwhelmed him. 
He was Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we deserve the wrath of God to come at us like a flood. To be completely damned and overwhelmed and swept into hell forever where we will be punished. But our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, stepped in front of that flood and said, I will be taken instead of them. And so because the raging waters of God's judgment hit him full strength, those who trust in him, the remnant, will be spared. And so for those who trust in him, he is now like the waters, the gentle waters of Shiloh, whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. He is the good shepherd who doesn't lead his people to destroy them and to gain from them but to give his life for them. Dear friends, God is a better master than the ones that we constantly seek. He is living water. The masters we seek and the saviors we seek are our our undoing. They end up mastering us and controlling us rather than caring for our souls. This is true of money. This is true of sex. This is true of pleasure and rest and comfort and empires and businesses and attention and career and popularity. And you are a fool for thinking that you will be the exception. You won't be the exception. If your trust is, if your fear is in anything other than the Lord God of Israel, whatever you trust him, whatever soothes your soul will one day be your undoing. It will not be a good master. It will not be a gentle river. It will be shown to be the raging waters of the Euphrates. Our fifth point is a conclusion. And it's going to come in in three parts. The conclusion is this. What should Emmanuel's remnant do while they wait? If God's going to spare that little piece of a lamb's ear, what are they supposed to do while they wait? Let's read Isaiah 8, verse 11 to 22. For the Lord, <clears throat> for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of his, this people saying, do not call conspiracy what the, this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock and a stumbling a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble upon it and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and be taken. We're going to stop there for just a minute. The first thing that Emmanuel's people, his remnant should do while they wait is to fear only God. Fear only God. Safe to say there was a lot of people in Judah who were full of fear. And the problem is not that they shouldn't have been fearful. It's not that they should have had no fear. The problem is that they should have had the Lord as their fear. Isaiah and his his disciples, they were not different in that they didn't fear anything. They were different that they feared the Lord. He was their fear. He was their dread. He's the one in whom they trust and fear. 
The sweetness of the fear of the Lord is that it casts out all other fears. If you have a vision or an understanding of what Isaiah saw in the temple, of God as holy, 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 if you see God as your worst nightmare, the worst person possible to be your enemy, if you see that the only thing that would matter is if this was your enemy, if you see him as the worst possible person to fall into the hands of for judgment, And then he says to you, I will take your punishment and I will reconcile you to myself and you will have peace with me. What is left to fear after that? That's why amazing amazing grace says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. If the Lord is your fear, if he is your dread, And then you are saved by the gospel. You have nothing to fear. The only one worth fearing is your savior. And he is your king. And if you take that seriously, you won't run to conspiracies. You aren't always looking for inside information to be able to predict or control the future. Or to keep billionaires from controlling you or the world. And that's not because they won't try. Because they're going to try. And they do try. Go ahead and try. Let them try. They can't. Because Christ is Lord. They're going to try to control the world. But they're not. Not for lack of trying. Because only the Lord God, Emmanuel, is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so, you can say, what shall I fear? What can man do to me? The Lord is the only fear worth fearing, and he is my shepherd. Second thing that Emmanuel's remnant is supposed to do while they wait is do not be offended by Emmanuel, but trust him as your sanctuary. Verse 4, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Paul and Peter writing 700 years later, they tell us that Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one born to a virgin, he is the rock of offense, which Israel stumbled on. Why? It's very offensive, this gospel, isn't it? This gospel that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter who your parents are, no matter how much you paid your taxes, no matter how much you volunteered, no matter how much you went to church, no matter, no matter, no matter, no matter, you, if you got what you deserve, would go to hell. You would be hit by the waters of God's judgment and God would rightly send you to hell. You would be damned. Every single person, every single person, you don't even just need God's help to be saved. That would not itself be enough. Your only hope is that Emmanuel will be damned instead of you. Your only hope is that he too, like the son of David 700 years earlier, heard of God's coming judgment and was shaking like the forest tree leaves in the wind. Shaking, terrified. But instead of refusing to trust the Lord, he said, I will trust the Lord. Me and my kids. I will do it for them. And when was the Lord Jesus, the son of David, trembling, shaking like leaves in the wind? When was he shaking? The only time we see that he was terrified 
was in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was talking about the Lord, uh, talking to the Lord God about the coming damnation that was going to come for him on the cross. And he sweat drops of blood. And he said, if it is your will, let it be done. And he trusted in the Lord. And he didn't just do it for himself. He did it for all who would trust in him. All the children that the Lord would give to him. The gospel is incredibly offensive. That your only hope was that someone was damned instead of you. But it is an incredible sanctuary. Dear friends, do not be tempted to be offended by it. Run to him as a, not as an offense, but as a sanctuary. Third one is this. The third thing that Emmanuel's remnant is to do while they wait. Cling only to the word which God has confirmed. We'll read 16 to 22. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold, here it is. I and the children whom God has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire on the, of the dead in, on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Thus far God's word. I think we're ready for Isaiah nine now, aren't we? For to us, a child is born, but not yet. What do we do while we wait? We cling only to the word which God has confirmed. There will be a temptation to not trust or find that God's word is sufficient. And we're going to try to find inside information. And so for that people, it would have been going to necromancers and mediums and wizards and witches and all kinds of those kinds of spiritual practices. I need to sort of hear in my thoughts, which is God talking to me so I can know the future because I need to be able to control it a little bit. And Isaiah says, don't do that and don't make Christian versions of those things. You only cling to the word that God has confirmed, which he has sealed. Isn't it interesting that God made a lot of promises through Isaiah and he sealed each one of them. How did he do that? He proved it with miracles and signs and wonders. That's what he does. When God gives a message for all his people to trust in, when he initially brings it, he loads it up with signs and wonders and and prophecies to prove that this is God's word. But he's saying there will be people who won't want that to be enough. He says, if you don't, if that's not enough for you, you have no dawn. Cling only to the word which God has confirmed. Now we can do this. We make Christian versions of these things. We have, we, we don't go to conspiracy theory websites. We go to Christian conspiracy theory websites. You know, we don't go to necromancers and wizards and witches, but we do listening prayer. We, you know, try to discern which of our coincidences. Oh, coincidences. That must be God saying that. No. To the word and to the testimony. Stick with the word that the good shepherd has given us. It is sufficient. 
Did you notice he said, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs? Isaiah's kids are signs, aren't they? They're they're prophecies themselves, those poor kids with those silly names. But you get this picture of judgment coming and Isaiah huddled with his kids and his disciples. They got these silly names and they're just together clinging. They're trusting. They're trusting in the promises of God that he will spare them. The judgment is coming. But then Emmanuel is their salvation. But wouldn't you know that the, the author of Hebrews says this itself was a prophecy of the Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, 2 verse 10. For is it fitting that he for whom and by all, for whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers saying, talking about Jesus. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation or church. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The son of David Ahaz refused to trust the Lord. And because of that, all of his people were consumed by the judgment. And the judgment came by the false savior they were trusting in. But the last son of David would not do that. He would trust in the Lord and he would do it on behalf of all whom the the father gave to him. We're not very good at trusting the Lord. We're not. We need a lot of help and we need a lot of patience from God and a lot of forgiveness from him. But you know who was perfect at trusting the Lord? That was Jesus. And his perfect trust is credited to us. He did it for us. It counted for us. And so we wait for the second coming of Emmanuel. And we do so trusting that we are his children. That the floods of the Euphrates, the big massive judgment of God has already been, it's already come for us and it hit our Messiah. And so now we can wait for him as the gentle waters of Shiloh. Dear church, let us trust only in him. I want to say a word to those people who have not trusted in Jesus. You will one day stand before God and his wrath will hit you. It will send you to hell and he will be justified in punishing you forever. I know this is offensive. Don't be a fool. There is a savior who has put himself in front of that flood out of great love for you. Run to him. Trust that he earned this for you and trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that though we deserve that judgment, the same judgment that the people we consider our enemies deserve, that you sent Emmanuel to spare us from those things that we feared and also the things that we should have feared, which is your judgment. Lord, I pray we would not be a fearful people, that we would dwell on the fear of you, which would cast out all fears, and that we wouldn't be afraid of the kings and empires and billionaires and tycoons rising and falling. We would not think of these men as pillars, but as smoldering bits of burnt wood. But we would fear you 
And therefore, we would be people who walk with great confidence and joy. Because Emmanuel, God, is with us. I pray you would do that in us, in Jesus' name. Amen.